Okay. So uh, we are looking at uh, the history of the intertestamental period. That's our first big topic, our major topic, but we've got others. We want to look at the culture and religious surroundings. We want to look at the intertestamental literature itself, what was written during this time and so forth. But we've talked about, uh, starting with the kingdom of Israel, David, Solomon, and then the divided kingdom, Judea and Israel. Um, and then the various captivities, uh, Israel, Judah lose their, um, autonomy and they've come under the pressure and control of other large ancient Near Eastern nations like Assyria. 722, they take the 10 northern tribes captive. Judea is left, Judah is left. And um, then the Babylonian captivity and the, Babyl the Babylonians take captives from Judah in 605, Daniel and his friends, 597. 586, they destroy Jerusalem, take captives. And then another empire arises to defeat the Babylonians, the Persian Empire by Cyrus. In fact, I got this history column email and it said that yesterday was the anniversary of the day that Cyrus captured Babylon. And when Cyrus the Great captured uh, Babylon, he allowed, you remember, the captives to return under Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. They rebuilt the temple, not to the grand fashion that Solomon had, and they built the walls under Nehemiah of the city. And then um, the Grecian period, that's the period that we're most concerned about. It has the most influence on the New Testament age itself uh, with Alexander the Great here who conquered the ancient Near East, and he spread uh, Greek language, Greek culture, Greek language especially, the Greek. And uh, we call the Greek that he spread, or the common Greek, or everyday Greek, or Koine Greek is the technical term. And that became the lingua franca, even through the Roman period. And, um, People throughout the empire would communicate mostly in Greek to one another beyond their local languages. And so he also spread culture, the way of living, the way of thinking, the Greek gods, the philosophy. He spread that and thought this is the way people should think and live and so forth. And so after Alexander died, remember his kingdom was divided among finally about four of his generals. These were Macedonian generals. Uh, these were Macedonians. And the first one uh, that we're gonna talk about is Ptolemy. Now he divided, uh, Alexander's empire was divided among generally four of his generals here in Macedonia and then Greece. And here's the Seleucid empire uh, that we'll eventually talk about, the Seleucids and the Green. And down here is the Ptolemy. So, at first, in the Ptolemaic period, 323 to 198, 
the Jews were under the control of Egypt, the Ptolemies. We say Egypt, but these were Macedonians in control. They had their capital here at Alexandria, a city built by Alexander the Great. And these were Macedonians, Greeks, who lived here and ruled in this area. And uh, sometimes this history comes in handy. I was just happened to notice yesterday there was some articles and I see some again today. <clears throat> I went to look for them because I wanted to see how big a deal this was, but apparently they're, they're making, or Hollywood or somebody's making a new movie about Cleopatra. And um, for those of you who are a little older, you may remember the movie in the 1960s, I think 1963, is what it said with uh, Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, playing Cleopatra. And that was a great extravagance of a movie. It was the most expensive movie of its up till that time. Uh, spent more money than, than ever had been spent on a movie. It took all kinds of time and effort. And she made it with her husband, I guess her, I guess it was her husband, Richard Burton, eventually her husband. She had a number of them, uh, six, I believe, but <laughs> that's nothing to Herod the Great when we get to him. We'll see. She's a miser compared to him, but um, they made this movie uh, in 63, and now they're going to make another one, apparently. It was announced, a great big spectacular movie. And the, the woman that they have chosen to play Cleopatra is, uh, I don't know her name, but uh, she is the woman who played Wonder Woman. Uh, there was a Wonder Woman movie a year or two ago, I guess a big movie. And she's an Israeli, this woman who played Wonder Woman is an Israeli. And so there's a lot of people up in arms about two things, an Israeli playing uh, Cleopatra and not an Egyptian. You know, she's got the wrong color. She's not a dark skinned person. Well, if you know the history here, Cleopatra was not a dark skinned person. She didn't have any Egyptian genes as far as we know in her bloodline. She was pure Macedonian, Greek, uh, all her descendants, I mean, all, all her ancestors were, were Greek. They lived a Greek lifestyle and so forth. She was the, apparently the first ruler to actually learn the Egyptian language, according to what I've read. But anyway, she was probably, there's no evidence that she was anything but a, a Macedonian, whatever that would be, but not an Egyptian. And um, so the Ptolemies uh, were... Uh, not too harsh on the Jews. They lived, uh, they, the high priest was in charge as long as they paid their taxes. Everything seemed to be okay. They didn't impose Hellenistic culture that much. But then the Seleucids uh, take control in 198. And um, they have a different view of things. And the, they're the Syrians, they're in the geographical of Syria, here's the Seleucid Empire, and they take control. They defeat Egypt, because uh, they're always vying for this territory in 198. And they defeat Egypt and take control of this particular uh, area. And uh, one of the rulers, Antiochus IV, uh, is the man who precipitates the Maccabean revolt that we talked about last night. Remember Antiochus was the Seleucid ruler and in 168 he decides to, uh, even though he's taken this area, 
um, he decides to um, come down and and uh, try to take Egypt itself. And he comes to Alexandria, and there you remember, I told you the story how the Romans, who are ascending in power now, becoming a great power in the Mediterranean, send a representative and say, you can't do that. He's forced to go back, and he decides he's going to have a cultic Hellenization of um, Palestine. He's going to force the Jews to give up Judaism, no circumcision, burn copies of the Torah. Uh, he sacrifices a swine on the altar of the temple in Jerusalem. He erects, a, erects an altar to, to Zeus and so forth. So uh, this ultimately leads to what we call the Maccabean Revolt last time, 160 to 143. And uh, we notice this began with Mattathias, a priest, and uh, he starts this revolt. And um, he uh, dies quickly, uh, killed quickly, and uh, Judas Maccabeus, his son, becomes the real first Maccabean leader. Um, Maccabeus is a Hebrew for hammer, Judas the hammer. And so he starts an guerrilla war against the Syrians and starts expanding and taking territory. Then uh, Mattathias had five sons, and three of them uh, are in charge of this uh, revolt. First, Judas Maccabeus, and then Jonathan. Judas is killed, and Jonathan takes over in um, 160 to 143. And then Simon takes over. And Simon uh, gains a, a, some autonomy. He's another son of Mattathias. And so we call this the beginning of kind of an independent, slightly somewhat independent, a kingdom again, with Simon sort of in control. And, uh, and it's called a Hasmonean uh, dynasty, Hasmonean period from an, a name, some family name of the Maccabeans. And so Simon... Uh, then uh, John Hyrcanus, his son, and then Aristobulus I, his son, and then his son, Alexander Unias. And so by the time you get to Alexander Unias, the uh, Maccabeans, uh, the Jews, have regained all this territory that we talked about last time. They have started here in Judah, and each, each ruler that comes along, each Maccabean, each Hasmonean, gains more territory. And so finally, by the time you get to John Hyrcanus, they've conquered all this area here. Uh, and they're in charge of, uh, of all this. And so after uh, Alexander Unias, his wife Alexandra rules uh, when he dies and uh, things are pretty peaceful there. She has her son Hyrcanus here as the high priest. He's a weak guy. And a very strong military guy is Aristobulus II, her other son. And uh, so after uh, she dies, she uh, declares that Hyrcanus will be the ruler in her place. So Hyrcanus is the high priest. He's the military leader. People like Alexander Yanis, they had to call themselves king, but uh, she just names him high priest and him military ruler. And so... Uh, Aristobulus comes along in 66 
and uh, our Hyrcanus, when he takes over in 67, he doesn't last long, just a few months, and his brother uh, forces him to uh, abdicate. And so Aristobulus takes over in 66, and uh, he becomes the ruler uh, of, uh, of the people. Well, there's a man named Antipater, who's an Idumean, that's south of, uh, you know, south of, uh, down here, Idumea, and this had been conquered uh, by Hyrcanus, by John Hyrcanus, and he had forced the residents to be circumcised. And so Antipater is the governor uh, of that area. The Hasmoneans had appointed him governor. And so he's interested in his own power and his own ascendancy. And he convinces Hyrcanus, who has been kicked out by his brother Aristobulus, hey, you know, you're really the rightful king. You're the oldest son. You should be king. Don't take it, you know. And he, he convinces him to get the Nabataeans, who are some Arabs, uh, Arab tribe that lives southwest in the area there, to southeast, to uh, uh, go with him. And they battle Aristobulus. They get into a wars with Aristobulus. So Hyrcanus and Aristobulus are going at it. In the meantime, the Roman general Pompey is coming down from Syria. The Romans send him to Syria to stabilize the area, General Pompey, and he comes in uh, to the area and uh, marches down. He ultimately marches into Jerusalem, into the temple. He doesn't disturb anything. He restores the sacrifice and everything. And uh, he... Um, he restores um, Hyrcanus as high priest. He reestates Hyrcanus as high priest. And Aristobulus and his two sons, one of them is named Antigonus. I mentioned him because he's going to come back up here in a second. They're taken as captive to Rome. So Hyrcanus is, uh, is there. He's not, he's really Antipater, as we'll see, is the real power. But Hyrcanus is there. He's a high priest. And Aristobulus is shipped off with his sons to Rome. Well, we're, we're talking a lot about the Romans, so I wanted us to kind of uh, go back in time a little bit and explain the history of the Roman Empire, just very briefly, uh, and try to show exactly how we got to Pompey and General Pompey being in uh, Palestine at this particular time. So we want to have this excursus on Rome. Now, uh, if you look at the history of Rome, there's various legends about it. One legend is that Rome was founded by twins, Romulus and Remus. It's a whole story about this. Romulus killed Remus and established Rome, at, named after him, as the city. And so the Romans, their calendar was counted from the founding of the city, AUC, Ab Urbe Candida. So they count from that, which corresponds to about 753 BC. And uh, archeologists have discovered evidence which confirms that pretty much traditional date. Now, later on, the Romans tried to glorify their founding and make it seem like it was a tremendous thing. And so they wrote literature about it. A poet named Virgil in the first century BC, uh, under the tutelage of Augustus, wrote a poem called the Aeneid about this. And if you took Latin like I did uh, in high school, that's one of the things we read. We read this parts of this epic poem. This is like uh, 
the Odyssey and Iliad and the Odyssey by Homer for the Greeks. This is the Virgil. They, they had an epic poem, the Aeneid. And it traces supposedly Ramus and Remus go back to uh, the hero of Troy, a Trojan who escaped Aeneas, who escaped and came to settle in Rome and his ancestors were Ramus and Remus. So they want this great glorious beginning for Rome. Uh, historically, we know that Rome started right here in Italy in this area called Latium. And this is an area around the Tiber River. The Tiber runs right down here into the sea and they are east, sort of east and south. Rome was the first to establish the city east and south of the Tiber here. And uh, so this is where the roots of Rome go back to these Latium people. So this is an ethnic people, Latiums. They spoke Latin or some form of early Latin on the lower valley of the Tiber River. And uh, when they established Rome, they were ruled by kings. They were ruled by kings until about from 753 up to about 509 BC. And then in 509 BC, they established a republic and got rid of the kings, established a republic, like the United States, a republic. Uh, it was, it lasted till 27 BC. So, you know, it lasted uh, almost 500 years. Uh, the last hundred years were pretty traumatic, though. But uh, so under this republic, you had uh, executive, you had an executive like we had, we had two executive officers who were cons called consuls. And they were elected annually and advised by a uh, by a legislative branch called the Senate. Now, in the ancient world, uh, people were born into certain classes and it was very hard to move around the different classes. If you were a lower class, you generally stayed there. The highest class in Roman civilization was the senatorial class, as we call it. And so you couldn't be, a, be in the senatorial class unless you were born into it. And you couldn't be a member of the Senate generally, generally, unless you were born in the senatorial class and you couldn't be a consul. That changes eventually over time, but first you had to be a consul, you had to be a senatorial class. So they had these executive officers who carried out the executive functions and you had a legislative senate, you had law courts too. In fact, they established a, a, a very important legal tradition. They, they had what they call the law of the 12 tablets, which every Roman boy memorized, it was drawn up, published. It was a general kind of a constitution and from that, they had case law like we do and statutes and so forth. But this was, uh, this was a, uh, quite an important uh, uh, development in the legal tradition of the Western civilization. And so even our country, when it was founded, they look back to republics like Rome to see how they were established, what went wrong, what they did right. And it's said that Roman law greatly affects our legal tradition in the West and America and so forth. Well, then uh, they entered a period of expansion and conquest, like a lot of empires. Most of these ancient empires were founded by conquest. They were taking over land uh, from other people. And during the um, fourth and third centuries, the Romans gradually expanded their territories to include all of Italy. So here they are, Italy, by the third or fourth century, now they have all of Italy here. Um, they, to be a Roman, you were a citizen of Rome. 
Rome is, Rome is not exactly like a country, it's a city. And Paul was a Roman citizen, meant he was a citizen of the city of Rome. Um, and so they gave many of their defeated foes various rights, now, sometimes not full rights, sometimes called Latin rights. Uh, they had private privileges of citizens, some, some rights, including marriage, trade, and so forth. But full citizenship was really a, a, a very uh, difficult thing to get. So we'll see that it's amazing that the Apostle Paul had it. Uh, in the third century BC, the Romans launched wars of aggression, though they claimed they were defensive purposes. And a series of three wars with Romans, the, Rome, the Romans defeated their chief rival in the Western Mediterranean, Carthage. These are called the Punic Wars because Punic is Latin for Carthaginian or uh, Phoenician. So they, here's Carthage here. Carthage was founded by Phoenicia over here, the great trading city, great empire. And Carthage had established an empire here in the Mediterranean that rival, was rivaling Rome. And so they had these uh, wars, the Punic Wars, as they're called. Uh, say Carthage was originally a Phoenician port, which by the fifth century was the capital large empire. And the first Punic War, Rome built her navy to defeat Carthage's naval power and win their first overseas territories, the islands of Sicily, Corsica, and Sardinia. So their first, in the first Punic War, they took over Corsica, Sardinia, and Sicily and added that to uh, their empire. Uh, then they had a second war, um, upset by this humiliating defeat and heavy war payments imposed by Rome. The great Carthaginian general Hannibal launched the second Punic War, 218 to 201 BC, by crossing the Alps into North Italy with his troops and elephants. Although he won a number of victors, victories and ravaged Italy for 14 years, he was forced to return to Carthage, which was being threatened by the Roman general Scipio Africanus, who defeated Hannibal at Zama in 202 BC. Um, and so um, they, they uh, defeated uh, Hannibal and took over this territory, a lot of this territory, southern Spain and so forth. They didn't destroy Carthage at this time. But Hannibal crossed the Alps here, came down, and ravaged Italy, uh, you know, for, four, uh, for, uh, for 14 years. But he was never able, in all that time, to really defeat the Romans. He, he did, did a lot of destruction and so forth, but he could never defeat them. But he caused terror. And you know how sometimes, uh, I don't know, sometimes parents would say, and if they still say things like this, like, uh, you know, they're trying to get their kids to do something or they're trying to scare, they say the boogeyman will get you or, you know, or, or the devil will get you or something, you know, I don't know, to try to get them to do something, uh, come in out of the high, come in from the dark or something. But Roman parents would scare their children by saying Hannibal's at the gates, Hannibal's at the gates. That was kind of a tradition and to try to get their children to come inside. And so they defeated Hannibal, uh, Af Scipio Africanus, his name was Scipio, and he gave him, the Romans gave him the name Africanus from Africa because he defeated here in, at Zama here uh, in 202 BC. But uh, most Romans were, a lot of Romans were not satisfied with that. Um, so uh, in the third Punic War, 149 to 146, Carthage was completely destroyed. There was a senator um, in the Senate who ended every speech with the words, 
Carthage must be destroyed. Carthage must be destroyed. And, <laughs> uh, and so they, they were constantly uh, on the war cry. And so they took over uh, all this territory uh, and this, this territory here that Carthage had, uh, was controlling in the Mediterranean. They, they became the controlling power in the Mediterranean area, certainly in the Western Mediterranean. So after the defeat of Hannibal, the Romans turned to deal with King Philip V of Macedon, who had allied himself with Carthage. So here's, uh, you know, here we are over here in Macedonia. And remember, we have skipped ahead in our study of Jewish history here because uh, this, is, this is part of Alexander the Great's empire that's left over to the Macedonians over here. And uh, so now he's... He's worried about Greece here, Athens, the Romans are. And uh, so they have a series of war with King Philip of Macedon. Uh, a series of Macedonian wars here, a bunch of them. The Macedonian, Macedonia was defeated and made a Roman province in 148. So then the Greek city-states, the Achaean League, they rebelled. They said, we're not taking this Roman stuff. And they're defeated. And they destroyed Corinth as an object lesson right here. In 146B, Corinth is totally raised to the ground, just about, apparently. And the city that the Apostle Paul visits is a rebuilt city. In 46 BC, Julius Caesar rebuilds Corinth and, uh, as a Roman city, Roman colony. And uh, that's the city that Paul actually sees. So uh, that's their period of... Uh, expansion and conquest here when they're conquering these territories here. And they actually come over and take part of the Seleucid Empire. Remember, the Seleucids are over here uh, at this time in the second century BC. And Antiochus III, remember, he's the ruler up here. He's the one who's going to eventually terrorize the Jews here that we just talked about. Well, they take part of his kingdom here. This is all Seleucid territory. They come over here and take part of this too. The Romans do. And eventually Pompey will come down here. So they're, they're, on, they're on the move. Then we come to the period of internal rest. The last uh, century of the Republic was uh, marked by an internal factional violence. Roman generals followed the example of the Roman general Sulla, who first marched his army against Rome, used their own, follow, used their own followers to try to enforce their politics. Sulla had made himself dictator to bring order. So the Republic was, was coming apart. And Sulla actually made himself dictator. He restored the Republic and then retired, which was amazing. People thought he was going to set himself up as a king of the dynasty. But that, even though he tried to restore the Republic and order, it didn't work. The power struggle continued. Theoretically, you've got a Republic, but it's a lot of corruption. Three ambitious politicians formed the secret agreement known as the First Triumvirate in 60 BC. So three men come to the forefront here in 60 BC and rule uh, Rome as an oligarchy here as three, three men, General Pompey, General Caesar, and Crassus, um, uh, who was a politician. So you've got Pompey that we've been talking about. Now this is 60 BC is before, this, this is uh, the time we're talking about here because uh, we just left Pompey you remember in our previous page, in the 63 BC, he's 
taking control of Syria. They, the Romans sent him out there. And so he and Julius Caesar, another famous general, of course, who conquered Gaul and various areas, and Crassus, they formed this uh, triumvirate to control things. Crassus dies, and then Pompey's was defeated by Caesar. So that doesn't last long. Pompey, uh, this is after our time now, because this is 48 BC, Caesar uh, takes control of the Roman Empire. He makes, takes up the powers of dictator. He makes himself dictator, and he's in control. Now, the people in Palestine, the Jews, uh, Herod, and others, they got a tough task here because Rome is changing its rulers right and left, and they got to be sure they're on the right side of things. And so we'll talk about Herod here, how he's able to finagle things. So Julius Caesar becomes a dictator. He's assassinated in 44 BC. And then Octavian, who is the nephew of a Caesar and adopted by the latter in his will, Mark Anthony, Caesar's chief lieutenant, and Lepidus, former consul and governor of Gaul and Spain, form a second triumvirate. So three more men rise to the top. The first is Octavian. He's the nephew of Caesar and adopted by the latter in his will. Roman adoption is not exactly, in fact, it's hardly anyway, like our adoption. We adopt children generally because we want children and we want to give them a home and so forth. That's not the Roman practice. The Roman practice is really more like a will. So Caesar had no heirs, so he forms an adoption. He adopts Octavian as his son, and therefore he inherits his title property. Octavian even changed his name to Gaius Julius Caesar. Uh, as his uncle. And uh, so he's very powerful. There's Mark Anthony, Caesar's chief lieutenant. Uh, mentioned, uh, I mentioned him earlier with Cleopatra and Caesar. We'll talk about them in a minute. And Lepidus, former consul. So they are form, form a second triumvirate. Well, Lepidus is removed and then Octavian and uh, Octavian and uh, Anthony they battle it out for control of the Roman Empire. And ultimately, uh, Anthony allies himself with Cleopatra, Queen of Egypt, and they're defeated in the Battle of Actium. Um, here, we'll talk right there exactly where it's at, but there's an internal struggle here and uh, this is where Anthony and Cleopatra are defeated, and they go back to Egypt and ultimately kill themselves, according to what we know. So this Octavian, of course, becomes Augustus. Um, so um, here is uh, the territories that are now added to Rome, all this territory. And of course, Pompey has added Syria down here, um, ultimately. Um, Octavian becomes the sole ruler, and he's more careful than Julius Caesar. Though he's a dictator, he doesn't act like a dictator. He's deferential to the Senate, and he's granted the powers, really, of sort of a dictator, and he, the Roman Senate gives him the title Augustus, and so we know him generally as Augustus Caesar uh, in 27 B.C., and he becomes Rome's first emperor. And so now we enter the period of emperors in 27 BC with Augustus, then Tiberius, Caligula, 
Claud you know, Claudius and so forth. And so this is the extent of Roman territory here, uh, right as we're in the first century BC in the period that we are dealing with. So that brings us then to the Roman period that uh, we left off. You remember that Pompey had conquered the area and he had put uh, Hyrcanus back in control. Theoretically, he was high priest, not really in control. As I say here, because of the support of the Roman general Pompey, Hyrcanus was once again made a high priest, but not king. Political authority rested with the Romans, whose interests were represented by Antipater. Remember, Antipater is the governor of Idumea. He, Antipater primarily promoted the interest of his own house, which was the beginning of the Herodian dynasty. Antipater and his Arabian wife, Cyprus, had four sons, Phasael, Herod, Joseph, and so forth. We're mainly concerned about two of them, Phasael, Herod, particularly Herod. So, um, so uh, the, um, the Romans um, really give a lot of authority to Antipater because he was useful to them to try to keep the Hasmoneans in control. Remember, we just talked about the Hasmonean dynasty and how that Aristobulus was taken prisoner with his two sons to Rome. Well, the Hasmoneans are still the dynasty that's been controlling Palestine, Judea for all this time. And they have a lot of sympathizers. The Jews are really kind of for them. They're not interested in, you know, Roman control. And so Antipater was useful in battling against the Hasmonean interest because Antipater doesn't want the Hasmoneans. He wants his own, he wants to establish his own dynasty, which he does. And so the Hasmoneans never really resigned themselves to Roman rule, as we'll see. Uh, I say here, when Julius Caesar defeated Pompey in Egypt in 48 BC, Hyrcanus and Antipater joined him. So they see which way the wind is blowing. Julius Caesar defeats Pompey. And so Hyrcanus, and they, they pledge their loyalty. Caesar made Antipater a tax-exempt Roman citizen, which meant his sons enjoyed citizenship. So Herod was a Roman citizen. They appointed him procurator of Judea. Now, procurator is a Roman title, one of the titles for governor. It essentially means governor of Judea. And reconfirmed Hyrcanus's high priesthood with the title of ethnarch of the Jews. Now, etrarch, ethnarch of the Jews, ethnarch is a, from a Greek, two words, ethnos means people and arche, ruler, ruler of a people. In some ways, it's kind of an honorary title. You're the ruler of the Jews, but but Hyrcanus doesn't, he's the high priest and he's sort of over the Jews, but you know, he's not really the power because you've got a governor of Judea. He's the real political power and that's Antipater. So the real ruler is Antipater. He appointed his son, Phasael, governor of Jerusalem and his second son, Herod at age 25, governor of Galilee in 47 BC. Um, Herod, became betrothed to Mariambi, granddaughter of Hyrcanus II. So Herod, here's Herod, the family tree of Herod. We'll be looking at this quite a bit. And so Herod marries then into the Hasmonean family. And he does that, you know, for political reasons, as we assume, um, so he could strengthen his political base. 
He's marrying into the royal house, uh, the heirs to the kingdom of Judah and so forth. And so when Hyrcanus sort of passes off the scene, he's old, uh, he's the ethnarch of the Jews. When he passes off, then he would be, you know, the natural guy. And he does become the guy ultimately. But here's Herod's uh, family tree. Now Herod actually has 10 wives, 10 wives. Now we've got five of them listed here. His first wife, uh, Doris, uh, she has a son, Antipater, named after Herod's father. And uh, we'll be talking about him here. And uh, Herod had, as I say, four other wives, some of the ones we don't know their names to, but these are the ones that produced people who are of interest to us. And so he div gets rid of Doris, divorces her, uh, you know, as a good Jew, divorces her, and uh, he... He, he marries Mariambi into the dynasty. You'll notice he's got another Mariambi here because he's going to kill her off eventually. And he likes that name, I guess. <laughs> he marries another woman by that name. And then he has various sons here we'll be talking about who come up as uh, rulers in the area of Palestine here. Um, that brings us to Antigonus, 40 to 37. He's the son of Aristobulus who had been carried off to Rome by Pompey. So he's the Hasmonean, you know, he's, he's the one in line. His father and his other son and his brother, they also escape, but they get, uh, uh, they get poisoned uh, by friends of Pompey. And so anyway, Antigonus, uh, he escapes and he makes his way back and he's going to overthrow his uncle Hyrcanus because he is the ethnarch of the Jews and, and uh, he's the Hasmonean ruler in a sense. Can we? Dr. Combs, I think we lost audio. Pastor Combs, for some reason, we can't hear you. Oh, bad. You're back. How about that? Is that, can you hear me now? Back. Okay. Well, I look for some reason, I guess the little microphone I was using here, um, 
I guess the power went out on it amazingly. I don't know. Surprising. I thought it was charged up, but maybe these, maybe I was too long winded or something. <laughs> I'll cut it off and uh, cut that one off too. All right. Okay. So I don't know where you, I left you at. Um, I was talking about Antigonus, uh, 40 to 37, son of Aristobulus, who was carried off to Rome by, his, by, by Pompey. And he escapes and he tries to overthrow his uncle Hyrcanus. He was helped by the Parthians who were uh, a, a nation on the eastern eastern of Palestine, and they were a rising power. They get into a, a fight with Rome for control, and so he gets their help to depose Hyrcanus. So Herod has to flee. Uh, he he has to leave the area. He's a governor of Galilee, but he's got to leave. And uh, and. Uh, um, and the and an antagonist, Antigonus, who's a Hasmonean, the descendant, uh, the natural descendant of the Hasmoneans, is in control from about forty to thirty-seven BC. Okay, that brings us to uh, uh, Herod the Great here, and I'll go back here. Herod went to Rome, where he was designated king of Judea by the Roman Senate on the recommendation of Mark Anthony. Remember we talked about this second triumvirate, particularly with involving Octavian, or we call him Augustus later on, Octavian and Anthony, and they're vying for power. So Herod comes to Rome. He's a very tricky guy. He's very persuasive and he's a friend of Mark Anthony. As we'll see, Mark uh, Herod builds uh, when Herod gets in control, he builds buildings in in Palestine and in, in, in Judea uh, in honor of various people. He builds one in honor of Mark Anthony, and ultimately Mark Anthony is defeated by by Augustus, like Octavian, and uh, and Herod switches sides and he builds a building, builds a whole city for a Caesar. So he was very very good at negotiating the political landscape. But he goes to Rome and they make him uh, a king of Judea. Um, so late 40 or early 39, he returns to Palestine. And now he has Roman legions at his disposal. Anthony's legate uh, captures, he recaptures Galilee. Finally, Jerusalem fell in the summer of 37. So he's got Roman legions, troops, very, very professional troops. And so he's able to uh, take back, uh, take back uh, Judea, Jerusalem, Galilee, everything, Samaria, from Antigonus in uh, in 37 BC. So this is the extent of his empire of Herod's kingdom, uh, pretty much like the Hasmoneans had. So he's, he's actually king of all this. He's given the title king by the Romans. So he's in control of his homeland, Idumea, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, pretty much everything here he has control of. Um, so um, 
um, at Herod's request, um, at Herod's request, uh, the Romans kill, put Antigonus to death uh, after they defeat him. Uh, the, they get they permission to put Antigonus to death. And that brings an end to the Hasmonean rule. So that just destroys the family, kills the family, uh, and there's no uh, descendants. And so that's it for them. Um, what I'm showing here is in 27 BC, during the time of Herod, um, Augustus, Octavian, divides the Roman Empire into provinces. Provinces of the Roman Empire. And he has two types of provinces, what are called senatorial provinces. That's in the kind of the purple here. These are closer to Rome. These are kind of stable provinces. They don't need a lot of military might to maintain control of these. Uh, for instance, some of the places that Paul visits, Ephesus, Macedonia, Philippi, Greece, Corinth, they're in really senatorial provinces. And they're ruled over, uh, they're, they're uh, controlled so really sort of more directly by the Senate. The Senate appoints sort of I mean, Augustus really has the power, but kind of unofficially, there are senatorial provinces, and there is a proconsul for the consul. Remember, we said under the Republic there were these two executive officers called consuls. Well, they kept that during the period of the empires. The, the, and so the emperor is a consul. And so for the consul, they have these rulers, these governors of the provinces. And so we see Paul meets some of those, like Sergius Paulus here at Cyprus. And then in Corinth, he, he comes under, and this is Acts 13, Acts 18, he comes to Corinth, and there's a, there's a proconsul, Gallio. Gallio is well-known in Roman history, well-known man. Paul stands before him at the Bema in Corinth, you remember, in Acts 18. He also uh, has what are called imperial provinces. These are the more unruly. That's the corner of the pinkish orange here. Uh, the more unruly provinces, uh, um, more important provinces to the emperor, Egypt especially here. Uh, Rome gets a lot of its grain from there, most of it maybe. And uh, these are these are ruled more directly by the emperor with some sort of military legate representative who kind of controls that, like here in Syria. Then there are client kingdoms, like in this green, and that's where that's where sort of uh, Herod eventually comes in on this map here. He's a client kingdom, so he's 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 a king. He's ruling it, but really, the Romans are still ultimately in control of what's really happening. These people have to be loyal to Rome or they would be in big trouble. Um, I mentioned here the years of uh, Herod's rule brought turmoil for the Jewish people. He was nobility, but of Idumean descent. His ancestors had been forced to convert to Judaism under John Hyrcanus. Remember John Hyrcanus, the Hasmonean ruler, had conquered Idumea and forced all the inhabitants, the males, to be circumcised, become Jews. But the Jewish people never accepted him as their ruler, uh, that is Herod. He was viewed as a representative of a foreign power, Rome. 
Herod did all kinds of atrocious. When he first got in power, he executed 45 of the wealthiest the most prominent Jewish aristocrats and appropriated their property. You know, he just ruled with an iron hand, this kind of thing. Um, so even his, uh, even his marriage to Mary Amby there, uh, that we talked about the second of his 10 wives really didn't give him the kind of legitimacy that, you know, in the sight of the people that he might want or wish he, he had. Um, he had uh, many problems that grew out of his jealousy and paranoia. He had Aristobulus third. Um, he had Aristobulus third, his brother-in-law, executed. Later, Mariamne, Mariamne, her mother, and two sons by Mariamne were killed because Herod viewed their Hasmonean lineage as a threat. Furthermore, just days before his own death, Herod has his eldest son Antipater put to death. So, um, um, so Herod killed off Mariamne. She's Hasmonean and he killed off her two sons because they're Hasmoneans and so forth. And he's concerned about that. He killed his son Antipater right before his death. Uh, so he, he was always paranoid, concerned about what was going to happen to him and who was threatening him. Um, uh, he was constantly, as I say, changing his will, changed his will six times because of plots real or imagined against him. Um, so he was, he was a very paranoid guy and killed off uh, wives and children and so forth, just ruthlessly. I say here, um, before Herod's death, there occurred the well-known incident of the Magi, divine instructions that took Joseph and Mary and Jesus to Egypt and Herod's massacre of all the male children of Bethlehem who were two years and under. You remember what happened there? The Magi come, they say, we're looking for the him who is born king of the Jews. Now, the text doesn't say this, but I'm sure Herod thought, wait a minute, I'm king of the Jews, man. <laughs> I'm king of the Jews. What are you talking about? So, you know, he's very upset by that, and he tries to get them to tell him, you know, let me know when you find this guy, when you find this baby, and so forth. And ultimately, he just tries to kill everybody two years and younger because of his fear of someone rising up to oppose him. I uh, say Herod had an impressive building program here, which he used to introduce Western architectural elements across his kingdom. He constructed fortresses, palaces, aqueducts, stadiums, amphitheaters, and even entire urban areas like Caesarea. So we'll see. Of note are the Antonio Fortress, Masada, the Herodium, and the port city of Caesarea. His most impressive construction, however, was the renovation of the Temple Mount and the Jerusalem Temple in 20 BC, which was not finished until AD 63. Jesus was born before Herod's death in 4 BC, probably around 5 BC. I'll show you some pictures of these uh, these places that Herod built are quite impressive in Jerusalem and other places like Masada and the Rhodium. 
uh, Pansy and I were fortunate enough when we were there in 2000 to visit Masada, though we climbed up the back place there and about killed me, I think. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Pansy, too. We, yeah. went to, we went to the Rhodium, too. Yeah, a very hot place in the summer in July. But um, um, when we talk about the dates here, I just might mention one thing in closing before we close tonight. Uh, it's a little confusing because um, our present calendar um, was devised by a monk in the 6th century AD. So 500 AD, 6th century. But apparently he, miss, he did miscalculate the date of Herod's death. Um, and so now we know that you know, according to the calendar we have, Herod was actually actually died in 4 BC. Well, of course, Jesus was born before Herod died in 4 BC. So we now know Jesus was born in 5 BC. He was trying to, you know, make AC and BC the, you know, to revolve around Christ when he was born and uh, before Christ and after Christ. But he miscalculated with the uh, ancient calendars and got things mixed up. So, now we now we know that Herod was, according to our present count, was born in four. So Christ, you'll see that date often five BC, maybe six BC, was born sometime before Herod's death. But uh, this building program that he went on was quite amazing and massive, and I'll just talk about that a little bit, show you some pictures of of what that looks like. But I see it's eight oh one. So I will uh, stop here for this evening, and I'm sorry about the audio dropping out. I'll have to make sure that that is uh, is fixed. I'll try to make sure it's really charged up next time.